morning. Welcome uh, to Emmaus. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as you do, let me just uh, again welcome you. Um, thank you for making it work, scrambling to switch to this B team, uh, or B plan to do three services instead of one outside. We are bummed about um, the weather, but that's uh, per usual for Missouri, and so um, we are rolling with the punches and um, glad that we can still uh, worship together despite the weather. Um, hey, if you're, if you're visiting Emmaus and you want to get a little bit more information um, about us or, or know how to get plugged in um, with us as a church, the way that we do that is we have a text-in number, and uh, that number is 816-448-8178. Again, that number is 816-448-8178. If you text WELCOME to that number, uh, we will connect with you and, um, and yeah, answer any questions you have. If you're wanting to get plugged into a, a ministry or uh, find out more about us or get plugged into a community group, that's kind of the, the one-stop channel to go to. So, again, that number is 816-448-8178. Also just wanted to let you know, next week, the weather is a little bit chillier um, outside, but we are planning, as of right now, to continue to meet uh, outside next week. So um, come prepared, bring layers. We, uh, when we first decided to start meeting outside, many of you said that you'd be prepared to come in 40-degree weather, so we're going to put that to the test a little bit. Um, so we figure if, it's, if, if you can do it for a Chiefs game, you can do it for, for, for worship. So... Um, so come, uh, bring, bring layers and, and uh, dress uh, in warmth for the cold, and, uh, and just be prepared. We're, we're sort of coming to, the, to uh, the time of the year when it's starting to get colder outside, so our, uh, our outdoor meeting time is kind of coming to a close, which is a bittersweet thing. That was a really enjoyable season uh, for us as a church, but, um, but that's okay. We, we recognize it as a season, and we're ready to move forward to uh, the next season uh, in the life of our church. So, um, all right, well, I'm going to, to read this passage from Romans uh, chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 18, continuing on through our series through the book of Romans. I'm going to read this passage in its entirety and then pray for us, and we will begin. 118, these are the words of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. But they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They are not, they not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Almighty triune God, we thank you for your self-revelation. We thank you for your word. We thank you also for the promises therein that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes what you purpose. So Lord, we cling to those promises now as we come to examine this text. Please send us your spirit. And may he apply these hard words to make our hearts soft. Do with this passage what no mere man can do. Do many things with it, we pray. Bring the spiritually dead to life. Bring the spiritually isolated into fellowship. Bring the wayward to repentance. Bring comfort to the discouraged. Bring wisdom to the perplexed. Almighty Father, we have come to worship you. Receive our attention now as worship. Sanctify us in your word. And we dare pray all of these things and ask all of these requests only in the name of Jesus, our mediator, on account of his blood and righteousness. Amen. Well, many passages in scripture are difficult to handle for different reasons. Sometimes the difficulty comes on account of their complexity. They're, they're difficult to understand. Their meaning is not at first glance clear. And so since often the meaning is inc incredibly consequential, interpreting passages of scripture can be this agonizing process of trying to determine what the passage is saying, right? They're, they're difficult. And so we read it over and over again. And their difficulty is summed up in that question, what does this mean? Well, today's passage is not at all like this. Today's passage is difficult. It's overwhelmingly difficult to handle for precisely the opposite reason. These words are hard not because they are difficult to understand. They are hard because they are so clear. They are unambiguous and sharp. There's not a dull edge in them, which is why they cut so quickly and so deep. Now, in chapter 3, verse 21, on through the rest of chapter 8 of this book, Paul is going to go on to clearly articulate the gospel. He's going to share the glorious good news of Jesus' person and work. But this good news must first be situated within the context of the bad news, which is what he now begins to articulate starting in chapter 1, verse 18, on through chapter verse 20. This passage begins Paul's development of the first major premise of the exquisite gospel's argument. And this premise is, apart from Christ, we're all in trouble. Right? Paul is going to go on later to show the commonality that Jews and Gentiles have in Christ, but before he does that, he shows them their commonality under the wrath of God. He shows them how bleak the situation is. And so today's passage is therefore like the silky jet black drop upon which the brilliant diamond of the gospel sits. You've seen that before in, in a jewelry case, right? You have this velvety jet black backdrop so that the, the diamond can sit on it and you can see it more clearly. Paul labors to show just how pervasive Sin is because it is in the contrast of sin's depravity that the brilliance of the gospel shines more brilliantly. The darker the night, the brighter the dawn. That's the principle. We cannot, we cannot come to appreciate the grace of God until we reckon with the sinfulness of sin. And our appreciation for the grace of God in the gospel will rise and fall with our appreciation for his holiness and thereby the severity of our sin. The holier God is in our minds, the graver our sin will be. And the graver our sin, the more glorious the gospel, the more exquisite the gospel. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to heed Paul's invitation to Look with unflinching attention at the bad news of sin and its effects so that 
we can gain a greater appreciation for the good news of Christ's person and work. We don't stare at the bad news of sin because we're morbid. We stare at the bad news of sin so that it drives us to revel in the glory of God in Christ. So let's begin at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul begins by mirroring last week's passage with its photo negative. We saw last week that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel since it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. But now he shows the state of affairs apart from the gospel. In the gospel, God reveals righteousness. Apart from the gospel, God reveals wrath. He reveals wrath to all men, Jew and Gentile. Now, divine wrath is a concept that we in this moment in late modernity, we feel very uncomfortable with this concept of divine wrath. We feel like we need to let God off the hook somehow. So we say things like, God doesn't send people to hell. People go there willingly. It's not God that's in his wrath sending people to hell. People go there by their own volition. And like all palatable lies, this sentiment contains a half-truth. People really do have a say in the matter. People sin, sin themselves to hell. They sin themselves to hell because they love to sin. We in our sinful condition love to sin. But if we are unwilling to name God's wrath for what it is, we are unwilling to tell the whole gospel. God has wrath for sin. It's not simply that he's saddened by it or disappointed by it, or offended by it. He hates it. God hates sin. He has wrath for it. And he hates it with a perfect, holy, consuming hatred. And we are uncomfortable with this fact with direct proportion to our ignorance of his worth. Our ignorance of his infinite value. If you smash my car, I will be angry but not nearly as angry as I would be if you were to harm my wife. Why? Because she matters more. She matters more. The increase of her value increases the severity of sin committed against her. And you would not think me a tolerant or kind or forward-thinking person for watching someone harm my wife and then saying to that person, it's cool. No one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. I'll let this one go. I dare say you would think me a callous, cruel person who valued my wife far too little. The value of her increases the importance of her harm. And kids, this should be a very comforting fact to you, that if someone threatens to harm you, your parents will become angry that that there is anger that will well up in them if someone threatens to, to harm you. You should be comforted by their anger in that respect. Now, if we think that God's, God is somehow overreacting for responding to our sin with wrath, it is because we don't see his infinite value. If he is who scripture says that he is, then his worth has no limits. His worth has no bounds. He is infinitely worthy of worship and adoration, which means sin, which is treason against him. It's the refusal to acknowledge him as worthy, as we'll see. Sin is not just kind of a big deal. It is infinitely egregious. The holier greater, more beautiful, more glorious God is, the more his wrath against sin makes sense. So if, if God's wrath against sin is a problem for us, we just need to come to recognize more how holy and how worthy he is. 
Now, Paul will go on to talk about God's manifestation of wrath in the last day. He'll, he'll go on to talk about this, you know, eternal um, end of times, day of wrath in chapter 2, verse 5. But here, in this passage, he's not talking about God's wrath which will be revealed. He's talking about God's wrath which is revealed. Now, it's evident. The resting condition in which humanity lies is under wrath. Now, he'll go on later to demonstrate this fact, to, to give proofs. But first, he's going to show why it's just that the resting condition in which humanity lies is under condemnation. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And here we see the sharp bite of general revelation. God revealing himself generally to all humanity. That's what creation is. All of creation tells about God. The flip side of this passage that we see here, we also see, for example, in Psalm 19. We just read it for our call to worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Which means there's not a place on the planet where you can say, I don't hear creation's message about God and his glory. Both Psalm 19 and Romans 1 teach us that creation itself is divine revelation. God speaks through the things that have been made. The whole created universe exists to call attention to the glory of God. That's what all of creation is doing. It's inviting us to worship God. It's saying, look at us. Look how beautiful we are. And recognize that we were made by an infinitely beautiful God. Worship him. That's what day and night are constantly doing. And so creation speaks truly about God and therefore plays a double role. It plays the role of a witness to God's worth and also a witness for the prosecutor against us. Not only does day to day pour out speech and invite us to worship God, it also condemns idolatry. It renders man inexcusable. The created order, listen, the created order reveals enough about God to condemn man for his refusal to worship him. This is exactly what Paul would go on to say. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. John Calvin calls this knowledge of God, which is actively suppressed in sin. He calls this knowledge of God the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. And it is to say that man's ignorance of God is not owing to a lack of information. Everything is information. You can't get away from information. Everything is information. Everything is telling us about the glory of God. It all calls our attention to God. The whole created order is riddled with the fingerprints of the divine. Which means fallen man's ignorance of God is an ethically culpable ignorance. We're guilty of our ignorance. Because in our fallen condition apart from Christ, we don't want to know about God. We don't know about God because we sinfully, subconsciously do not want to know about God. In its federal head, Adam, the first human, the human race has rejected God. And when you cut yourself off from God, when you cut yourself off 
from the source of all wisdom, you cannot but become foolish. When you cut yourself off from the light of holiness, your heart cannot but become darkened. And and notice the centrality of worship in this passage. Because God made man to be a worshiping being, it's never a question of if we worship. It's always a question of which object we worship. It's never a question of if. It's always a question of which. The presence of indwelling sin is not the manifest, uh, manifested in the refusal to worship. The presence of indwelling sin is manifested in the refusal to worship God. Whatever I worship, says fallen humanity, whatever I worship, I will not worship God. And thus we exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We worship the creature rather than the creator. We worship anything and everything but God. And we should therefore not be surprised when we see our culture's current drift into paganism. When we throw off worshiping God, we're not entering into some neutral space of non-worship. We have to worship. So if we throw off worshiping God, we will start to worship anything and everything but God. Right? We worship nature. We worship power and political capital. We worship money. We worship sex. We worship our pets. We worship ourselves. All because we will not worship God. And we therefore have an answer to that age-old question. How could God justly condemn the innocent person Maybe that tribesman out in some remote village who worships the sun or worships the earth simply because he doesn't know any better. How could God justly condemn that person who's innocently ignorant of God? How could he do that? And the answer is because no such person exists. There has never been an innocent nature worshiper. There has never, ever existed an innocent idolater. That person worships the Son instead of God, not because he doesn't know any better, but because his father is Adam, and rebellion against the Almighty runs in his bloodline. That's why he doesn't worship God. The burden, brothers and sisters, the burden that we have to go and take the gospel to where Christ is not named is not the burden to go and educate innocently ignorant people. That's not what the burden of missions is. It's the burden to take the gospel to those who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness and are therefore under the wrath of God. The situation is dire because, precisely because they are not innocent, because no one is innocent. Because all of us live in God's world, which is constantly calling us, inviting us to worship God. And we, in our sinful condition, are constantly refusing. That's the situation. And Paul continues now with evidence to prove that this is the situation. Evidence to prove that we exist in this state under the wrath of God. Verse 26. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave them up. These words are heart-wrenching. Paul uses them three times in this passage. God, Paul, God, God gave them up and they show us, show us that the pervasiveness of sin in our world is not simply the reason for God's wrath. It's also an expression of God's wrath. The pervasiveness of sin in our world is not just an occasion for God's wrath. It's evidence of God's wrath. It's an expression of it. Letting us go, letting us plunge into the sin that we pine after is itself an expression of wrath. And Paul's words here in this passage are unmistakable. We can try to make them less clear if we want to, but they are so clear. He is unambiguously saying that homosexuality is a sin 
and it is an occasion for and evidence of God's wrath. Notice this, brothers and sisters. When, when Paul is looking for an example to cite in order to demonstrate God's wrath against the pervasive ungodliness in the world, when he's searching for a clear example to prove his point that we are under a, a condition of wrath, what's the example he reaches for? He reaches the example of widespread practice of homosexuality. That's the example he appeals to to prove his point. And he does this because this particular expression of sin is a clear and visible display of man's rejection of God's authority. What, whatever God intends, it says, I want to do the opposite. If God has created the world to function in this way, I want to do the opposite. And this is profoundly countercultural. I, I don't think I need to tell you this. Right? Our increasingly pagan society insists that sexual desire is the defining characteristic of a human being. And so, this kind of talk, to disparage one's sexual desires and sexual expression, this kind of talk is equivalent to disparaging one's very personhood, one's very humanity. Right? Our culture says that, that such desires exist on a spectrum, and there is no such thing as natural relations. It goes against such, such, such a notion, natural, natural relations. You be you. You speak your truth. That is the common sentiment of our day. That's the sentiment of our culture. And these words here in Romans 1 plow furiously in the opposite direction. They tell us that God has created the world to function in a particular way. There is a natural order of things. And wisdom would seek to labor, to seek it out, and conform to it. To harmonize with it. To do so is to honor God as the creator. To say, God made the world to function in a particular way. He's given us natures. Let me find my nature. Where is the groove for me to get into? And let me conform to it. Let me go with the flow. Let me go with the grain of the natural world. That is honoring to God. Sexual desire, brothers and sisters, has a natural order. It has a natural function. It exists within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it exists for. That's what it looks like when it's, when it's ordered according to its actual nature. That's the most natural thing in the world is for sexual desire to be expressed within the context of a marriage covenant. But when humanity cuts itself off from God, when it suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and exchanges the truth of God for the lie, Disorder follows. It cannot not follow. The more consistent we are in our rejection of God's authority, the more we will rage against the natural order. Since it reflects him whom we hate. Right? If we don't, if we don't want to acknowledge that there is a God to whom we are accountable, we want to go against the grain of the natural order. And this is why that an increasingly godless society is an increasingly anti-natural order society. If God is God and I am not, then my sexuality exists for what he made it for. If God is God and I am not, then my gender is what he says it is. If God is God and I am not, then marriage is what I dream, is what, sorry, is what he calls it, not what I dream up. If God is God and I am not, there is a givenness to creation that cannot be manipulated by my sheer will because I don't have the authority or the ability to make the boundaries budge. They're fixed. There are, there are fixed boundaries in this world. But the person who hates God cannot abide these things. The society that hates God will reject God's authority at every possible turn. So it will say, Humanity is what I say it is. The unborn baby has value that I attribute to it. My sexual desires are intrinsically virtuous because they are mine. There is no God to whom I'm accountable. What you see is what you get. If I want it, it's right. 
right? My gender is what I say it is. It's a social construct, and I want to construct it differently. Marriage is what I say it is, and I say that it's an egalitarian partnership. Husbandly headship doesn't jive with me. Heterosexual, monogamous marriage doesn't jive with me. That's what godlessness says to God's authoritative ordering. It turns its nose at nature. But the world is what God made it to be. And no matter how hard we try in our sinfulness, we cannot wish away the boundaries of the natural order and we attempt to do so to our detriment. Right? If I say, if I say that I reject the natural order of gravity, this is my truth. My truth is that gravity doesn't apply to me. And I jump off a building. I will have the sensation of freedom for a second. But reality, the reality of the pavement, will not respect my truth. It doesn't answer to me. The pavement doesn't answer to me. It answers to God. And God commands for it to remain solid and for gravity to continue to pull me down. So if I go against the natural order, I do so to my own detriment. This is what Paul means when he says, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. You go against the natural order, you harm yourself. He continues now to list evidence of God's condemnation. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The thing that is so striking about this list is how Paul places these various vices all on the same plane of severity. Right? There is no building or diminishing order to this list. So you see, for example, things like murder, and deceit and maliciousness and haters of God and inventors of evil mentioned alongside things like covetousness and foolishness and disobedience to parents. And what this shows is not that Paul's sense of proportion is out of whack, but that ours is, right? If we don't put covetousness alongside inventors of evil, that's because we don't see covetousness for as wicked as it truly is. Now, when these things are widespread, Paul says, you see evidence of God's wrath and giving up a people to their debased minds. And when we consider this list alongside the world in which we live, brothers and sisters, how can we not but lament? We should lament. We should lament of the pervasiveness of sin. Many believers said in 1973 when the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision came out, that this was inviting God's wrath, right? This decision of abortion on demand was inviting God's wrath. And there's a real sense in which that's true. Since that day, 62 million, upward of 62 million infants have been murdered. Legally. That's our culture. That's our country. It's legal to do that here. And if that's not begging God for wrath, I don't know what is. So there's a real sense in which that was inviting the wrath of God. But there's another sense in which that was already an expression of God's wrath. God giving up a people to their debased minds and to all manner of ungodliness, including murder. We could go on. We could enumerate the examples in our culture. That's just one of them. And this is an occasion, therefore, to beg God for mercy. This is why... Many of our prayers of confession include confessing the sins on behalf of our country and begging God for mercy. Right? We beg God to be merciful, not, not only in some later day, but that he would relent right now, that he would stop right now giving us up to a debased mind. But to pray such a prayer on behalf of our culture at large, brothers and sisters, we need to take the sin in our own midst deathly serious. And do we dare laugh away and minimize 
the severity of our own sin? Do we dare laugh away our maliciousness and insolence and pride and strife? Like on social media, for example. Do we just consider it some small thing? Do we just take it for granted? Yes, when I go into the cesspool of social media, I start acting like a jerk. What are you going to do? Do we just take that for granted? As if it's no big deal? If it's no big deal that, that we as believers have an indistinguishable presence in that regard? Paul doesn't take these things lightly. He doesn't take strife lightly. He doesn't take haughtiness lightly. He calls them all manner of evil. Do we dare relativize or minimize our ruthlessness and haughtiness? Do we dare relativize or minimize our gossip, our envy, our covetousness? Far be it from us, Emmaus. Do we dare relativize disobedience to parents? Do we call it cute? Brothers and sisters, if you are inconsistent, parents, if you're inconsistent or careless or dismissive about your children's disobedience, you're not doing them a service. It's cute when they're young, but the sins of youth lie heavy on old age. It is profoundly unloving to minimize the seriousness of disobedience. This parenting, this call that we are called, this, this vocation that we're called to, it's a high and noble and difficult task, and it, it requires all of us it requires consistency. It requires, it requires our whole selves. It, it, it includes treating the disobedience of our, of our children seriously, not as some personal offense against our pride. That's not why we take it seriously. We don't take the, the disobedience of our kids seriously because we're embarrassed by it. We take the disobedience of our children seriously because it is a mortal threat to their souls. That's how we should treat it. The Puritan pastor, Ralph Benning, says it well. He says, we should teach children moral and religious courage and bravery, which fears to sin more than to die. And to make the choice of Moses, preferring the reproaches of Christ before the treasures and pleasures of this world. The sins of youth will lie heavy upon old age. If you want to do your children an extreme disservice as adults, ignore their sin now. Minimize it now. And kids, listen to this. God's word, God's word calls disobedience to parents evil. He says that. God, God uses that word to describe our disobedience to parents. And so what that means, kids, is when your parents... When your parents discipline you and teach you to obey, they're not doing this because they want to make things hard for you. They're not doing this to be mean to you. They're doing this because they love you. They're doing this because they love you. They're doing this because God gave them to you. God gave your parents to you as a gift to help you become holy and happy in Christ. So when they tell you, that in your sin, you should confess your sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus by faith. They want you to grow up to be holy and happy grown-ups. They're helping you. So obey them and be thankful for them. Though they knew God's righteous decree, verse 31, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give Approval to those who practice them. According to God's word, sin is manifested not only in certain actions, but also in the approval of certain actions. And let this be a warning for those of us, brothers and sisters, who have an insatiable craving for the opinions of others. Those of us whose worst nightmare is being labeled a, a bigot or close-minded or prudish. Be warned, brothers and sisters, in a godless society, there is no reconciling cool with Christian. They're mutually exclusive. So give that pipe dream up. 
right? We can fool ourselves into thinking that our incessant man-fearing is somehow keeping a good witness when it is actually just plain old-fashioned worldliness. It's not enough to technically disapprove of the sins mentioned in Romans 1, but function as if we were not bothered by them. We should be bothered by them. Now, this doesn't mean that we should walk around with signs and assume a posture of vitriol and self-righteous malice and hatred, but it does mean that the sin in our world should grieve us. The sin in our neighbors should grieve us. Right? Our lost neighbors are not helped by our obsession for their approval. We're not doing them any favors by begging for their approval. Right? Please think I'm cool. Think I'm cool. I'm not one of those crazy Christians over there. Ugh, I'm one of the cool ones. I get it, right? Your sin is cool with me, right? I'm technically against it, but between you and me, I think Paul might be overreacting. Assuming that kind of posture, even implicitly, is not loving our neighbor. That's mercenary. That's using neighbor to puff ourselves up and self-flatter to their detriment. They need to see that we are heartbroken over their sin. Not that we are so progressive that we just think it's dandy. No, brothers and sisters, we must lament and grieve over and hate all sin, including the sin of our neighbors, not because we are just so holy that, our sin, that their sin offends our impeccable conscience, but because sin is fundamentally self-destructive. And if we love them, we will hate their sin. Again, Ralph Venning says it so Others, other men's sins cost good men many a tear and an aching heart because sin is so contrary to God and to the good of men. He goes on to say, all sin is against God and for that reason, he who truly grieves for his own sin will grieve for other men's too. Now in closing, let me just remind you brothers and sisters that the problem with preaching this book over the course of many weeks is that we're forced to end our sermons before the passages that we're preaching come to their logical conclusions. Paul did not intend for us to read Romans 1, 18 through 32 in isolation from the rest of the, this letter. For that would be to, to leave us in despair. Now don't get me wrong, he intends to leave us in despair, but he intends to leave us in despair of ourselves so that our own poverty would drive us to Christ to receive solace and comfort. So as we conclude this sermon, let, let us consider this passage in light of the glory of Christ, which is seen in the rest of the book. Now I offer you these four pastoral charges. First, Christian, I charge you, I charge you, Christian, to marvel at the depth of sin so that you might marvel at the deeper depth of grace. Marvel at the depth of sin so that you might marvel at the deeper depth of grace. The situation that we just considered over this past half hour, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that situation is not the situation God has left us in forever. The first Adam plunged this world into condemnation, but there was a second Adam. There is a second Adam. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the depth of sin that the first Adam plunged us into is not too far for the second Adam to take us back out of. Jesus came after us, brothers and sisters. We just sang this glorious truth. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Through Christ, Paul will go on to say in chapter 5, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christian, we can afford, we can afford to look into the darkness of our sin. We can afford to peer all the way there. We can afford to see the depth of our depravity, not because we have confidence that we will be able to pull ourselves back up out of it, but because the mercies of God are infinite. Christ is a light that penetrates the deepest darkness. Christ is a deluge of rain and grace that can bring habitation to the most barren and desolate soul. 
Christ is a physician that can bind up and heal the most marred and defaced and sin-brutalized heart. We can enumerate our sins. We can count them all. Because while they are many, his mercy is more. So marvel at the depth of sin. So that you can marvel at the deeper depth of grace. Second, Christian, I charge you to calibrate your conscience with the scriptures. Calibrate your conscience with the scriptures. It's not enough to formally agree with the scriptures. In theory, we must bring our feelings into conformity to the scriptures. We must bring our consciences into conformity with God's word. It's not enough to technically disapprove of sin. We must hate it like God does. We must feel the way about sin that God does about it. We must be heartbroken over sin. We must lament of it, both the sin in our hearts and the sin in this world. And where the calluses of worldliness have encrusted over our hearts, we need to peel them back with confession and repentance so that we can bring our hearts into agreement with God's word and not just our minds. Which brings me to my third pastoral charge. Third, Christian, I charge you to lament, confess, and repent of your own sin. Lament, confess, and repent of your own sin. Treat it like it's your mortal enemy. Because it is. That's what it is. Once again, Ralph puts it only like a Puritan could. He says, to be merciful to sin is to be cruel to yourself. To be merciful to sin is to be cruel to yourself. To save the one alive is to put the other to death. Therefore, do not spare it, but repent unfeignedly from the bottom of your heart. Or as John Owen famously puts it, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You can do this, Christian. You are not powerless to do this. You can confess and repent of your sin. You're not powerless. You have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. You are resourced with infinite power to put your sin to death. Because of the sure footing that you have in the grace of God, you can do this. You who have come to Christ by faith and have been justified by his righteousness, you have nothing to lose by exposing your sin and confessing it in repentance. You will lose nothing of eternal value. Now, you may lose temporal things like your reputation. That may be marred by your open confession, but that reputation was ultimately powerless to save you anyways. It's a good riddance if it kept you from confessing your sin. Fourth and finally, this charges to any non-Christian who happens to be here with us today. I'm glad that you're here, and my charge to you is to behold your dire condition under God's wrath and run to Christ for safety. Behold your dire condition under God's wrath and run to Christ for safety. This is not an issue to take lightly, friend. Do not attempt to argue with God about who or what you are in your sinful condition. That is not an argument you will win. You remain under the wrath of God. Let the severity of that bad news sink in. Your situation is dire. Your situation is dire, and your, if you continue in your Christless state, your present condition is an anticipation for the day of judgment. But take heart. There is a refuge offered to you. There is a place of safety from the wrath of God, a shelter from the storms, provided by God himself. Jesus Christ the righteous, for this same God who is full of wrath against sin is also rich in benevolence. And though he cannot rightly ignore your sin, for that would be an injustice, that would be a lie about the severity of sin. While he cannot ignore your sin, he can nevertheless remain just in justifying you by paying for your sins in the death of Christ on your behalf. No depth of depravity is too deep for Christ to redeem you from. So don't ignore your desperate condition. Don't look away. Don't look away. Look 
Look at it with unflinching focus and let it drive you to Christ for safety. Come to him with the empty hands of faith and hide under the shelter of his wings. Sing with us in just a moment. Sing with us, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Do that even now. Even now as you watch us Christians take this meager of communion together. Receive our enjoyment of this little meal as an invitation to come into the family of God. Right? If you're not a Christian, this meal isn't for you to take yet. It's not a meal for you to take yet. It's a meal for you to observe. And as you see us take this bread, consider the broken body of Jesus. As you see us take this cup, consider the shed blood of Jesus. Don't take the emblem of Jesus' body and blood in communion until you have taken the real Jesus by faith. And he's offered to you now, young Christian. So take him. And Christian, as we celebrate this meal together, consider how costly this bread and this cup is. These are ordinary things in and of themselves, the bread and the juice, ordinary things in and of themselves. But what they represent, what they serve to accomplish by faith and by the work of the Spirit is infinitely costly, costly enough to redeem you from the depth of the sin that we've just been focusing on. They are emblems of Christ's infinite generosity. He has given himself to us in the gospel, and Jesus does not give himself out to us in bits and pieces. It is the whole Christ that we receive by faith, and the whole Christ we continue to commune with at this table. So as you take, brothers and sisters, consider just how much Christ has saved you from, and be thankful. Let this be a meal of thanksgiving. I'm going to pray and then ask for the, the believers to come and take communion together. Let's pray. Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please consecrate this meal for our good and for your glory. You have fed us with your word. Now continue to feed our souls with this table fellowship. You have commanded us to take this meal as an act of worship, and so we now obey. In this meal, Lord Jesus, we proclaim your death until you return. So commune with us now as we continue to worship you, and please sanctify our worship that it might be pleasing to you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take.